0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper. And they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative, ecological, or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So, Centropic Agroforestry has exploded in popularity and interest in the last few years. Now, I've explored this agroforestry design and management system a little in some previous episodes with my friend Jacob Evans, but there's so much more to explore. Now, first pioneered by renowned farmer Ernst Gottsch in Brazil, his integrated approach of dense planting and timed pruning, an intervention to accelerate natural succession and replace outside inputs for both ecosystem regeneration and nutrient-dense food production, has sparked an interest in many people to adapt the concepts to their own climates and contexts. From what I've heard, however, adapting centropic methods to temperate climates has proven more difficult than many people originally thought. The plants that thrive in these latitudes have different growth cycles with their long dormant period and may compete for light more than their tropical counterparts. Now, luckily, I was able to find someone who has not only studied with Ernst closely in Brazil, but has also been pioneering centropic systems in Germany, who was able to share some key learnings from the first couple years of experimentation? Now, Renke de Vries studied international forest ecosystem management and works as an agroforestry designer and consultant and in arboreal maintenance. Now from 2019 to 2023, he has been responsible for the design, establishment, and management of centropic agroforestry systems, especially at Gut and Busel, the famous farm in Brandenburg outside of Berlin in Germany. In this interview, we go into the learnings that he brought from his formal studies in forestry and forest management and how they juxtapose with his learnings from Ernst in Brazil. We also dig into the systems that he's been designing and planting and the crucial learnings in his ongoing attempts to use centropic principles in temperate climates. Now, though there is still so much to learn and experiment with, I've been very interested to see the different iterations of what I'm convinced are very wise and widely applicable principles of ecological management from the syntropic concept. Now, hopefully this discussion will spark some interest in some of you to start your own agroforestry experiments. But now I'll hand things over to Renke de Vries. Well, welcome, Renke. It's a pleasure to finally connect with you. We've been talking about having an interview like this for a while, but our schedules haven't aligned, but now we finally got the opportunity to talk and I'm really looking forward to exploring agroforestry with you. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. Well, look, let's start with the beginning. Why don't you tell me a bit about your personal background and how you got started working in agroforestry?
1: Yeah, um, so yeah, I mean, I've mean i grown up in the countryside and um, so my parents um, had like an old farmhouse so i was lucky that i started like um gardening since i was a child and also yeah just um transplanted trees when i was a little child and had like uh, got a good connection from my from my childhood on and then um after after school i um did some ecological um work for free for the government and then i started like um, studying in um International Forest Ecosystem Management in, in Ebaswalde. And yeah, after after finishing that, I um, did a permaculture design certificate and worked a bit as a freelancer in, in gardening and um, designing um, gardens. And um, yeah, a little bit later, I started like um, tree climbing and cutting trees. And I think it was 2018, when I met um Benedikt Bösel on a conference about syntropic farming in Berlin. The conference was held by Ursula Atzmann. And um yeah, after that conference, we um we had a conversation about the possibilities of syntropic farming in Germany, and I visited um Benedict's farm. And then um beginning of 2019, um Benedict decided. And that he would like to start a centropic project in Germany, um. So he decided it together with the manager of of Ernst Gerd at this time, um. Called Silvio, and yeah. Then I there I was. Then I was um sent to Brazil, beginning of 19, uh, 2019. and I um spent three months there, mainly working on Ernst's farm, also visiting some other projects, and then I came back to Germany and um. Yeah, fall two thousand nineteen. We planted our first syntropic system um, in in East Germany, in alt It was about three hectares. Um, and since that, we, we have expanded every year. So um, yeah, first I was alone. And then um, the next winter, we were already two people working there, me and Osanna, And we planted um, two other systems. And um, yeah, it, it went on like this. And now we have like about 18 hectares of syntropic um, agroforestry there and with like 18 kilometers of tree line also. And um, besides that, we also have some forest transformation projects um, where we um, compare like um, conventional forest transformation to syntropic con- forest transformation um, also to the natural succession where you don't do anything. Mm, yeah so that's where we are right now
0: um so this is really exciting and i'm looking forward to talking about the learnings and the contrast from those experiments but let's take a couple steps back i would love to know what is on the curriculum what are the things that you learned in your program on international forestry uh, management or development when you studied it formally
1: yeah i mean compared to what i learned afterwards it, um feels like um feels like not too much so actually you get an overview about um everything a bit so you get like basic knowledge about biology um plant physiology um, about native trees mainly a little bit about um, um international trees you learn a, a bit about um, plant identification in general how to identify herbs and um, and stuff like this. Um, we also had a lot of um, um, social topics. So social economy was also a, a part of the study because the study um, yeah, focuses a lot on people who go into international work later. So within my studies, I also I've been to Colombia and worked in um, different projects there. So it's uh, quite an international study. Um, but you you don't go very deep into into certain topics. It more gives you like a very broad overview. And after that, um you can decide um, yeah, what you're gonna specialize on. Um, yeah, and during my studies, I already um um heard about syntropic farming uh, when I was in Colombia, actually. And yeah, after my studies, it was quite clear for me. That I'm not really interested in um, conventional forestry as it is. And um, that it's like, yeah, that it's my dream to combine like um, forestry and agriculture again to really find like a holistic um land management approach.
0: And when you talk about conventional forestry, are we mostly talking there about timber production and management of wild forests? Or what else does that go into?
1: Yeah. So yeah, one one part of the study definitely has been like um conservation and reserve management, and besides that, and um, the forest management is always very focused on timber. Like there are these um, forest byproducts like uh, mushrooms and also the ecosystem services like fresh air, good water, etc. So there's a big focus on these ecosystem services, um, but um, topics like producing fruits and nuts in the forest um are not really um yeah are not really part of the study and especially in in middle europe um it's like very clearly separated like agricultural production also fruit and nut production is clearly separated from um timber production and the only thing which is um, considered are like uh, people collecting mushrooms but also we're just talking about Wild mushrooms, so not like um cultivated mushrooms in the forest, which would be an option as well. And um wild animal management is, is also is also a topic, definitely. Yeah.
0: Got it. Okay, so moving on from that program into what you started to specialize in later through education and permaculture and then into centropic agriculture. Can you tell me about how that expanded not only your interest in this, but what it kind of led to with your projects later on?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it led to the fact that I'm, mm, yeah, that I'm working like, um, kind of an outsider, let's say it like this. So, um, it led to the fact that in the forest, um, we also included like a lot of, um, eatable species, which is like completely un- uncommon in Germany. And also, um, Agroforestry is um, mainly in Germany. It's still focused on um, wood for biomass production, so for um, thermal use mainly. And if it's not that, it's also just one single use, and mostly also like um, high quality timber. If it's not thermal use, then it's like um, furniture timber. And what we try at our farm, what I try in my systems is like to combine like everything to produce like high quality timber but at the same time produce like um, nuts and fruits Um, and this um, yeah gives a complexity which is um, quite quite unique or yeah not completely unique but which is really um, yeah not typically in the agroforestry which we have seen um, so far um, in in Germany.
0: Sure and so Moving on into your role with Gut and in starting out these agroforestry systems that are testing what is possible in a system that was mostly developed in the tropics into, you're in a maritime
1: climate, is that correct? Um, no, we're like in a continental climate.
0: Continental, okay. Yeah. And so not only the differences in temperature and probably rainfall patterns throughout the year, but definitely in the species that are going to thrive there, I would imagine there are quite a few adaptations that would need to be made from what you learned in Brazil in the tropics over to that climate in Brandenburg in eastern Germany. Tell me about some of those differences and how that transformation has been made.
1: Yeah. Um I mean, if you if you talk to um Ernst and if you see a systems in Brazil and if you if you start understanding them, um, it gets quite obvious that the principles of nature are are always the same. That you have a succession going on where one species follows the other. Um, but yeah, the the most um important um um difficulty is that you have to have to find your your species in in this climate and this i i um had to do by by myself because there were no centropic experts in in this climate working already um but yeah with this my first um, study um definitely definitely helped and um yeah if if you just look at the natural ecosystems around you um, you you can see the succession so, yeah, you, you need to know your your ecosystem very well. You need to know the species, you need to understand the succession. And furthermore, you have some other difficulties. For example, um seed availability. So in the tropics, um Ernst always says when he's um creating a new system, he always uses like the fruits of the season because there are almost always enough um fruit trees and Um, timber trees available having seeds and fruits so in our climate it's a little bit more more complicated with this so you really need to check that you get your seeds together and some trees also don't have seeds every year so sometimes it's also good um, to collect seeds and store them for for two or three years that's also what we are doing right now so we have like fridges where we store like different seeds for example the uh, ash trees the fraxinus trees they don't have seeds every year so if we have a good um, harvest of fraxinus seeds we try to store enough so that we can also seed them in the next year um, when we don't have them um, available um so yeah you really need to to check with your um, seed availability um that's a big a big topic and um yeah i mean stuff is growing a bit slower over here. Um which um yeah kind of gives you gives you a little bit more time but also it's um harder to make like a um like an early revenue out of the system. So in Brazil after eight months you can um, harvest papayas so we we just don't have these um, um fruit cultures which give such an early revenue in our climate and so um, the time you need to invest till you really get products out um, definitely is a bit longer. Um, so you need um, you need the possibility to to get over this time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and it makes me think that we should probably go back and go over some of the principles in nature that are broadly applicable, and then go into how you work to design the systems and the adaptations that you've done. So let's start with some of the main principles of centropic agriculture that are applicable to any climate? What are some Mm -hmm. of the main ones
1: there? Yeah, so one very important is like that you plant um, very densely. And by this, you try to um, work by seed as much as possible. Um, So we started with a very dense uh, mixture of, um, yeah, root cuttings, cuttings, um, seeds and trees so that we have a very good microclimate and that we also have like this um, natural selection process. Um, And besides that, we try to include the succession um, in our systems. So this is something usually we completely um, forget in forestry and also in in agroforestry or in general in in agriculture, that a system usually is developing so that you have like... um, less demanding plants in the beginning, and they're followed by a little bit more demanding plants. And by this, the system in terms of water holding capacity, um, soil structure, um, diversity is always enhancing. And if you just look at a uh, um, grain field nowadays, so you grow like a early successional um, grass in the end, and after that, um, you harvest, you, you you work the soil, And then you start um, from the beginning and the system is, um, yeah, slowly, um, slowly, um, slowly decreasing. Yeah, and centropic agriculture tries to do the opposite, but at the same um, time, always also to get a, to get a revenue out of the succession. Uh, yeah
0: so you this is what I kind of understood when I started to study this as well when you say you're planting the full succession at the same time and how that's different from conventional ways of looking at either forestry or orchard management it's the the plants that take up different strata in a forest and that have different requirements as they're growing right so everything from the canopy to the different layers all the way down yeah as well as those that need both, you know, kind of uh, what would you call them? More fertile or easier conditions to grow in, good soil, regular rainfall, even if that's not what you have yet. And the idea is to curate those as time moves forward, you're accumulating biomass, uh, fertility in the soil so that those later succession plants can do well but you're planting them all at the same time so that as this succession moves forward, there is already something there to occupy that space as you move into those later stages. Is that a good summary?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say um, that that fits, yeah.
0: Okay. So what are let's, let's move to some of the others now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Another point then um, is like the selective weeding so um, usually if you have like um, tree rows or also forestry and you do some kind of weeding or weed control, um, you just um, cut everything down. And we really um, check if the plant has fulfilled its its function now and um, just if it has done the function. Um, so if, it, um, if it's like already dying off, and um, then we we take the plants out. And um, so, for example, um, on one field we have a lot of um, creeping sizzle, um, and and um, so um, I and there I don't just pull out the creeping sizzle with the roots because the creeping sizzle there has an important function. So it's it's loosening the soil, and it's also accumulating boron, and um, which is uh, missing on our fields. So what I do is I try to cut down the thistles before they go into flower. And but I leave them there for two or three years and then they disappear. And that's what we recognized on our and agrico- um, our on our um, agroforestry stripes in general, and um, that we have a lot of weeds, um, but the weed composition changes over the year. So the weeds we have in the first year, um, they don't appear in the second year. So at least most of them. And then in the second year we have other weeds and um, we try to control them that they don't overgrow our trees and stuff but we just but we do not um, just pull out them without um, thinking about it or um, sure.
0: the general theory that weeds have a very necessary function in the succession of a system and if you allow them to perform that system it reduces the amount of work or inputs that you need to bring in that would otherwise substitute for what those weeds are doing there and that fits with what you've been observing in the system as they bow out as you know maybe boron is adequately sequestered or the compaction rate of the soil starts to change right
1: exactly um and what i found um really important um and um, this topic for example is um that um it's if you have like grasses growing within the tree row, it, it can be very, very problematic because the grasses are very um, difficult to manage because you cannot cut them down in the trees, in between the trees all the time. And so so what we try is to um, fill up our tree rows with a lot of um, herbs we, we choose, which are like also um, part of the natural succession. And so that the grasses are not growing in that much um, from the sides, so we um, our um, agroforestry stripes are always um, they have like a grass clover and herb mix on on their sides, and this grass clover and herb mix we mow and sways to the trees so that we always have a line of mulch on each side of the tree row. And within the tree row, we try to have like um strong growing herbs, also early successional herbs, for example. So we always put some flowers in there, we put wild will in there, we put wild carrot in there. So we have like these uh, one and um two-year um, um living um herbs, but we also put like um herbs which are living for more years, like comfrey, horseradish. Um, mint um, different artemisios meops um, um and yeah it's those develop good and we also managed um over the last years to establish most of them by seed which makes it um quite um yeah what makes it more economically economically feasible and then you really um, reduce uh, the amount of um, weeding to to a minimum um, yeah and that's that's a very very important part Sure. I
0: mean the big thing with these systems is the amount of management that it requires, right? Yeah. There's always a trade-off in between you know how much work gets done, how much input gets uh, brought in from, from another site, or how much machinery and fuel is required to supplement the, the labor. And you're using much more of a patient, active and insightful sort of input system, which is your management in order to reduce the cost of inputs or machinery that other systems rely on. But the compromise there is that you need to figure out how to use that time efficiently. Otherwise, you, know, you could just be there fiddling with plans by hand all day, all the time.
1: Yeah. And
0: these types of insights are really useful for people to set expectations about what the management could look like on their own version. I like that.
1: Yeah, I mean that's also like the biggest, oh, not the biggest, but that's also a big um, difference to the tropics. I mean labor co- labor costs there are just much much lower, and also people are um, still still used to do certain labor works, which here in middle Europe it's just um, not yeah not possible. Let's say like this, and so to have like some kind of mechanization in the systems is um yeah is really important. Um, but also it's it's incredible um what kind of work you do not have with a centropic system. I mean, for example, we are not um, irrigating our systems, um, and we are in a very dry climate. So we have like on average four hundred millimeters of precipitation. In some of the years, um, we had even even less. Yeah, and for example, this and um, this is something we don't have to do, which also is like a yeah a high amount of of costs and labor and um yeah also the health of the trees is like um very very remarkable yeah so yeah another important um principle of centropic farming is like the disturbance and mm-hmm. um, so that like um disturbance is, is part of the system and um, i mean it's a little bit like also in in holistic um grazing um so um you try to keep the plants and the vegetative um, growth as long as possible. Um, so, uh, But also there we have to make compromises. And so um, I we we now manage that we cut our herbs within the tree rows like one time a year because cutting them two time a year is like, yeah, in terms of labor is just not possible. And um, so we cut all the herbs within our tree rows one time a year um, when, they're, when they're in flowering and so that they do not go into this um, reproduction um, stage because when they're like um, producing seeds, they don't give any root dates. So we try to um, keep the plants in the um, vegetative growth. That's also what we do with the grass gla- clover and herb mix next to the tree rows. So um, for example, if we have like alfalfa and, and other, other clovers um, growing there, we we let it flower, but when the flower is going to end, um yeah, then we cut it
0: before it starts producing it aside,
1: seed. and then we have a have a regrowth. Um and yeah, in the beginning of a syntropic system, um, most of the biomass and most of the dynamic is always coming um from the grasses and herbs. Um so also in our climate, it takes a bit more time till you get the biomass from the trees. So if you work in the tropics um, and you have a dense system, your system can close um, quite soon and then you start pruning the trees and most of the biomass is coming coming from the trees. Here in our climate, um, it takes some years till you really um, start pruning the trees um, in a way that they produce enough biomass to support the system. So of course, we do a little bit of... Um, thinning, and um, also um, training our fruit trees. But that's not not the biomass production right now. So in the beginning, um, yeah, these grass clover herb mixes next to the tree rows are a very um, essential part to produce uh, the biomass for the system.
0: So wait, let's go back and get specific about the different stages of growth in a plant and why you're intervening on the vegetative growth and before you start to reach senescence, right? Because it takes mm-hmm. a little while before... It gets established well enough to go into vegetative growth. And then the, I guess the downhill or the plateauing side of that growth curve is when they go into a reproductive cycle. Can you tell me about what's happening in a plant's growth or or the different uh, yeah, aspects of that succession and why you're intervening or disturbing its growth at a certain point?
1: Yeah, yeah, so um, in the vegetative um, growth phase, the plant um, has like a lot of um, gives away like a lot of root exudates, so it has like a lot of um, connections with mycorrhiza and um, um, yeah, bacteria also. And when it goes into the um, stage where it's doing the seed production. Um it doesn't, it it like completely stops this um connections with the mycorrhiza and the focus is, is on drying drying out the seeds. So to not take up too much water and to, to dry out um the seeds. And um this also influences like the rest of the system. So you see it when you um don't don't cut a meadow, it just goes um yellow and it starts falling, and you don't have any any growth um going on there because it's going to, into the seed ripening stage. So the soil microbiology doesn't get um, any more root exudates, and the system goes, um, yeah, to an unproductive um, stage for a while. Um, and this, um, yeah, we try to, try to, we try to intervene there when like the, um, the, the yeah, root exudates they reach their maximum when the plant goes into flowering so, we try to keep it flowering a bit also to support all the insects and pollinators we want for our system. But then, when the root, uh, when the seed ripening um, starts and the um, plant is um, cutting the, um, the connections to, to the mycorrhizae and the soil biology, then we cut the plant and then it goes into vegetative growth again. And by they that, restart we restart
0: it. And plants are unique in that they've got this ability if you can cut them or disturb them in the right way, they'll actually restart their growth cycles and you can reestablish those connections, the root exudates, and that's what you're trying to keep going throughout the photosynthetic process of a season as long as possible, right?
1: Yeah, and this is also the step um, where we become a useful part of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I'm sure, um, or I mean, it's quite obvious that in a natural ecosystem, animals and and other other species um would fulfill those functions. um, but yeah, as um they're not doing it in the artificial systems we created, um it's it's our job to to optimize the system. And um, yeah, I mean, you know what? I think the pasture is a good example because everyone knows that if you don't cut a pasture end of May, um, beginning of June, depending on your regions, it will just grow, it will get yellow, it will fall over, and you will not have a lot of growth there. But if you cut it, you will have a green regrowth and you will be able to cut it again after um, a month or one and a half half months. And that's also what Ernst was able to show on his farm that um, with his uh, method of pruning all those um, mother trees above his cacao, he's producing like four times more biomass um, than a primeval natural forest um, is doing, and um, yeah, this way of pollarding trees was also done a lot in Europe in ancient ancient times. So um, yeah, pollarding trees to have a to have a production for animal fodder and fuel wood has has always been um, part of our culture, but yeah, we kind of um, forgot about it.
0: Yeah. What are the species that are most associated with pollarding in Germany, or the places that you know of?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so willow is a very um, typical pollard tree. Um, I mean, willow in German also means something like pasture. Um so weide is um yeah eine weide where, where cows are, are grazing. So it was also a quite common tree to, to give um to feed to the animal animals. So willow is a typical um pollard tree, um lime also is a classic um pollard tree, um ash tree, um also the maple tree. The maple tree was used um a lot for pollarding um from the Romans. So they grow wine on the maple trees and always pollarded the maple trees and had their wine um, growing on those maple trees. Um, So elm, elm was also a classic pollard tree. Um, Yeah, so yeah, this might have been the the most important pollard trees. Yeah, oak also also has been been pollarded a lot. Yeah. Very cool.
0: Okay, so that gives us a good idea about how we're managing, how we're stepping into a system like this to assist the growth and accelerate succession essentially are there any more principles that you want to go over
1: um no i think we don't have to go into everything just one thing maybe um but we had it a little little bit that you you in, in syntropic agriculture you don't look at um plants and also you don't look at insects or virus or in anything you don't and um, put it into good or bad so also when I find an insect eating on my plums, I don't I don't think all oh, that's a bad insect. I need to get rid of it. You always try to look at things um, in, in the way of function. So also with the uh, weeds, you try to see why is this weed growing here? And when I look at the weeds in my fields, I always find a, way, a, a, a reason why it's growing there. It's either it's be compaction or too much nitrogen or not enough aeration in the air. And the same applies to like um insects and um, yeah fungi or um viruses or something you have like this. And really this um, changes your way of of thinking a lot because you're not seeing nature as an enemy, so but you see it more as a as a comp- as a companion who is um, yeah showing you um, what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, And yeah, if with this kind of approach, agriculture um, just um, feels much more um, harmonic, let's say, like this. So you're not working against something, you're working with something.
0: Yeah, yeah. A Holistic approach, a whole ecosystem view of what it is that you're managing, not just breaking it down into individual components and micromanaging their growth systems. Um, That's characteristic of a lot of other types, but I love the way that it is approached and articulated in centropic systems, talking about the macro organism and looking at it through successional stages and trying to identify deficiencies before you immediately assume that something is there unnecessarily or needs to be eradicated as a form of management. All right, so with these principles, which, like you said, are broadly applicable across ecosystems, climates, soil types and such. How do you go about designing the system that you did? Because there's so much that one could do with an agroforestry design. We can go from silvopasture mostly managing for the growth of grass and forage for animals. We could look at it as an orchard trying to get a yield from the trees themselves. And there are so many different combinations and configurations in between. What did the design criteria and process look like for you for these experiments that you're running on the farm out there?
1: Yeah. Um, so in the first year, um, with the first area I've planted, um, we put it on a um, field which was um, used for um, fodder production in the in the previous years, and um, we decided um, to not focus on a on a single fruit. Um, fruit crop in the first year so for our first system we decided really to put like um, one or two fruit cultures per row and and to combine it with different um, uh, mother trees so wood trees and also with different seeds to really get um as much as um, information out of it um, so the first system we did was not um, focused on production. It was more focused on, um, yeah, getting um, as much knowledge um, um, possible out of the system. Um, so I mean, in general, if I design a system, I look at the um, natural vegetation around me first. So I see what are the pioneer trees um, doing doing well in this region, and and um, those pioneers um, I um, usually um, plant by cutting, or I plant them as young saplings. And um, the reason for this is that a, a lot of pioneer trees, it's like a principle of pioneer, pioneer trees, they have like very tiny seeds um, which are quite difficult to, to germinate, germinate in the field. So for example, a, a poplar seed. Um, it, it can germinate for like 24 to 48 hours maximum. So it's just these white fluffy stuff flying around um, in the summer. So it's very difficult because our systems we establish in fall. And um, so it's almost it's impossible to keep um, poplar seeds for such a time and then um seeding seeding them in in fall and with a lot of um pioneer trees it's like this they have like very tiny seeds and they go over a long distance and also this um pioneer trees are very um proved to be very resistant and so i decided that the, the easiest is um to just plant these pioneer trees or to do them by root cutting and um if i look at this pioneer trees I always try to have a a good mixture of um, plant families to to not just have, for example, poplar and willow, which in the end belong to the same um, family. And so I try to have like like a good diversity um, in in different plant plant families. So that later on, um, the microbiome is as diverse as possible. And in the end, in all the syntropic systems, and um, the diversity comes through the mother trees, because in the mother trees, which you're pollarding later on, you can have a huge diversity. But in your production crop, let it be hazelnut or let it be plum or let it be cacao in the tropics. You need to have like, yeah, you need to have like one culture per row. Um, or if you have different harvest times, maybe in some circumstances, you can do two fruit cultures per row. Yeah, but you need to have them. um densely together to make an economic harvest possible. So um, to bring in the diversity and to have a resilient system, I I mainly do this um, with the the mother trees. Um, And also for this on the first area, we didn't mix those mother trees completely. And in this first area, we planted like a block of one mother tree, for example, birch. And then we planted a block of willows and we planted a block of poplar then we planted a block of elder and um, to see how the different uh, mother trees are interacting with the fruit culture um, below but this was yeah more uh experimental approach and in the systems afterwards i always try to have as much as much mixture within the mother trees um as possible um so yeah so first of all i look at this um pioneer species um, and also there, I'm I really um, always try to have as much as possible, so I'm not afraid of any um, non-native species. Um, Ernst always said you should plant what grows, um, and yeah, some some of the non non-native species, like for example the Robinia zeudo-acacia um, or the the gray elder, um, just have um, yeah remarkable traits which we just um, have to use in our climate and it also gives you a lot of stability because even if one tree steers will go um yeah we'll have problems with um, a change in climatic conditions you always have like um, more options so to say. And so um besides this yeah another thing is that in the tropics you always have like at least three four um, layers of trees. Here in our climate, um, I mostly focus on having two layers of trees. So I have like one layer, which is the upper layer, like the emergent layer, where I have the mother trees, which are pruned regularly. So they're pruned every year.
0: These are your and below, what like poplars and what else do you use as your emergent in that area?
1: Yeah, so in the beginning, I mean, we always have to differentiate because um, in between the early emergence and the late successional emergence. But the early emergence are, for example, um, some type of willow, mainly um, Salix alba, but also Salix caprea, but mainly Salix alba. And so we have like three, four different varieties of poplar, Populus tremula, Populus alba, and some hybrid poplars from North America. And then we have like different elders. So we have like um gray elder, we have like Italian elder, which are very drought resistant elders, and then we have the some legumes like the robinia, um, and also the glidicia. Yeah. So this um yeah birches, birches also play an important role. So there we mainly plant the um, sand birch, the Betula pendula. But we also um, um, make some tries with the Japanese birch because it has some some valuable timber. Um, Yeah, so those are the main early um, successional trees um, we are are working with here. Um, Yeah, and um, below that, we always have an early um, successional fruit culture. And if you look in the early succession here, um, or in general in Middle Europe, there are always some berries in the early succession. Mm. And so, yeah, what you need to find out is what are the um, berries which are doing well in the early succession in, in your region. And for example, my region, uh, typical plants of the early succession are like the um, raspberry and blackberry. Um, and what we also find here is sea corn. Mm-hmm. And what grows also very well here even if it's not native, is the silverberry. It's also an um, early successional shrub, and it does really well here. Um, so yeah, if we have plants which are doing well here in the succession, and um, which we can use economically, yeah, we are not afraid of taking them then in the, in the system. And um, yeah, then you have of course to um, think about the the possibilities of your farm and what is feasible. And blackberries and raspberries is like uh, mostly hand harvest, with a lot of labor. So that was not the, the way to go for for us on large scale. Um, silverberry is still not really considered a food in in Europe. Um, so it's difficult to market even if I think we should should give it a bigger, sen- uh, bigger chance. So this is why um we um focus mainly on seba as a fruit production. Um. Um in the early succession. Um, yeah. And then um, the rest of the of the succession we um mainly bring in by seed. Um, because this emergent mother trees I mentioned, like um, willow, poplar, and robinia, and so on, and um, they're gonna leave the system after something like 20 to 30 years i mean they're always going to thin out because so some going to leave earlier but the latest they're going to leave the system roughly in 20 to, to let's say 35 years um, um and to also have like um, mother trees um, in the system later on um we seed um the the later successional mother trees so tree species like uh, maple um, ash chestnut um, different oaks, and they are uh, cherry. Um, they're all brought in by seed, and then they grow up in the shade. Um, of these early successional mother trees, and in the shade of of the sea buckhorn, and also the um, later successional fruit cultures. Um, let it be apple, or let it be pear, or let it be plum, or hazelnut. That are like the four cultures. Also, we are mainly focusing on. Um, We also bring them in by seed and then regraft them um, later on the field. Um, Yeah. And And so uh, the main
0: reason for having fewer layers here is that in these climates, there are fewer, at least commercially viable species that can tolerate the shade compared to the tropics. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. I mean... Not completely. I mean, there are two main reasons for this. And the first reason is that we just do not have that much um, sun here. So you you need to go down with the layers because you cannot have three or four or even five different species um, and then still have a fruit production below. And um, this doesn't work. And um, also here in our climate, the goal is to mechanize the cutting of the polar trees. So the mother trees, I call them polar trees now, but these are the trees which are always um, in the in the upper layer. Um, the goal is to cut them mechanically. And because, yeah, um, pruning them like it's done in Brazil manually um, is just no, not possible here um, in terms of labor costs and also in terms of labor security in the end. Um so the goal is to have a mechanized cutting of the mother trees. And then it's really difficult if they are in different heights. So our goal is to have like one one height of mother trees in the end. And the the height I'm approaching is like about seven meters. And those mother trees should be cut on seven meters like every year mechanically. And the material should also be shredded immediately by the machine and blown into the field. And I think that's a really um, important step of... um, yeah, um, adapting um, syntropic agriculture to to our climate and also to our working conditions. Does this
0: machinery already exist, or is this some of the trouble that you've had in finding the ma- mm. <laughs> management assistance that you need?
1: Um. Yeah, this system um is like planned by by a company called Centropic Machines, um. So it's it's on their list. It's it's, it's a um machine they they should produce um but it's not uh, there yet and um, but if you look for example at these um tree cutting machines um you have in wine production um you see that there is similar stuff available but not on the height and also the um the process of shreddering it immediately um is not um is not implemented there yet um so it's definitely Possibly in the way of what we can do um, with machinery nowadays and there are similar machines available, but um, not not the one we need right now.
0: Or adaptation yeah. is required still. Looks like yeah. it's an R&D challenge.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. And so now the system that you've put in or the different trials that you have put in are a couple of years old right now. How old exactly?
1: And this oldest trial field now is in the fourth summer. So it's okay. now the fourth summer of growth. Yeah. And yeah, this was a trial field, and the other fields we created afterwards, they always had a production focus already. And um, so we um we planted um fields um with um six and a half meter um row distance um where just like um chickens are are included so there we just have a little bit of hay production and um, chicken production um, besides the trees and nuts and um, we also planted a silver pastoral system where cows also can be included and with a focus on walnuts and now this year we are planting a system which is like completely integrated into the grain production of, of the farm farm as well yeah
0: Okay, this is really interesting because now you're going into a bunch of different types of management and production models. And, you know, I know that those are earlier, and even the oldest one at four years is very, very early stage for a system like this. Like you said, some of the early successional species aren't going to bow out until about 30 years. And that's still considered kind of young for the development and the succession of the whole system. So, what have you learned so far? What have been some of your biggest takeaways? from the the growth and the transformation that you've observed just in these first few years?
1: Yeah, Um. so one um, observation um, was that um, working by seed is um, not as difficult as it seems. So we have huge successes um, seeding apples, um, seeding pears, seeding plums, um, seeding hazelnuts, and also seeding chestnuts. And these are just the fruit cultures I'm mentioning. So we were very successful in in seeding all the timber trees as well. And um, people are always afraid of seeding because they think it's going to be more work. But I can definitely say it's less work and it's less um, money consuming as well. So um, we always just um, make one seed mix. With all the herbs we want to have in there, with all the um, mother trees and all the fruit trees we want to have in there. And this seed mix we bring out within the planting in fall. And we start with the seed mix. Um, So we usually do this in November. We bring out the seed mix. And then afterwards, um, we plant those early successional trees in there. And... um, yeah, the first area we planted in the first year, um, I was quite in a hurry there. I just came back to Brazil. So I had like three, four months to prepare and everything. And yeah, we wanted to have something there as soon as possible. So for the first area, we, we bought a lot of trees. So we bought plum trees, we bought pear trees, we bought hazel trees um, whatsoever. And of course, I tried to buy like um, small qualities, But also I was quite limited by the organic certification. So if some nursery has the tree organically available, you're forced to buy it there. And then they just have certain qualities. So we were forced to plant some big trees like with three to five years after grafting. And um, they really suffered. Um, they, They are still suffering even if it's getting less, but they're still suffering and stagnating and and the comparison to the to the plants we seeded is like was like incredible so one year after this first experimental trial with the yeah bigger trees we started um seeding the trees i mean also in the first experimental trial we seeded some species um but then in the second year we yeah did a system like where all the late successional species were seeded and their health is like very remarkable there we didn't have any um any troubles with drought so I was not even stressed where we had like six weeks without rain the the um, seedlings were still looking looking really good and um, with this first trial I was really unsure if it's um and what what seeding will work so for example with the plums I wasn't sure if they're going to germinate and so I put in like uh, some extra species And for example, to the plums, I added um pear and hazel because I wasn't sure if the plants going to germinate, but the plums germinated like um, beautifully and also the hazel and the pear. And now I have like three options to go for. I can go for because I'm not mixing fruit cultures in a row because that's not going to be economically. And so now I can go for plum, I can go for hazel or I can go for pear and everything looks quite, quite great. And um. This is also something I would recommend um, to everyone else, um, that you give the yeah, that you give some options to 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 the ecosystem, and that you do not just focus on okay I need to have plums here I need to have hazel here that you give like two or three options, and then at least one of them will grow and succeed and you have time to time to think about it, and it's not really changing the time and effort you put into it. Like adding one species of seed is not not a big effort. It doesn't make any difference in the time because you just have one big mixture, and yeah, you can collect your seeds um, yourself, or even if you buy them, it's it's not not a big um, big cost point. So that was quite quite remarkable how um, much healthier those um, seeded plants are, and also how much cheaper it is to work with them. Hmm. and then um wait so one quick
0: question i Mm -hmm. have been struggling to find good sources for tree seeds most Mm -hmm. nurseries will sell you saplings or fairly large post grafted trees that's Mm. easier to find where are you finding varieties of seeds for your your fruit trees and your later succession species
1: yeah so um i was well, I'm quite lucky that there, um, there's quite some forest around our farm, and also a lot of hedges. Also, a lot of um, ancient hedges where you can see that there have been some fruit production going on on these in these hedges, like maybe a century ago or something. Mm. So you have these hedges of wild plum and wild pear, and I'm quite sure that these have been grafted pears and grafted plums in the past, but they just have been been forgotten. Um, so we were able to collect of a, a lot of um wild plums. So all the wild plums we seed we can collect at our place. um with the apples, first, we used like apples from a um from a juicery, so because um the juice is is heated after the after it's pressed. So the pulp with all the seeds you can use for seeding um we collected wild pears because wild pears is a very resistant layer for pears and yeah and we have we have quite some forest here so we could collect our um, maple seeds or ash trees and um, and so on And um, so the my majority of seeds um we just um collect ourselves or we get them from juiceries. i also seeded aronia from a organic um um juicery which is pressing organic aronias um, and yeah, some stuff we, we also buy, like from um, local um, governmental um, forestry seed sources and um, also from like some co- companies like um, Herzog Sam or Plusbaum. Um, so, yeah, you need to find the seed sources in, in your region. But if you if you keep your eyes open, <laughs> most likely some something's gonna appear. For example, I mean Berlin is full of tree hazel, so you can collect a lot of tree hazel seeds in, in Berlin, and then we seed the tree hazel, and then we um, graft the um, productive hazel like the Corillus avellana uh, on top of it. Um, yeah, so there's not like one source for buying stuff also because you want to have locally adapted stuff so the first thing i would recommend to everyone is to have a look around you in the region um yeah ask other farmers and stuff Um, maybe look for wild varieties of fruits where you can graft on Um, because yeah you don't yeah you just don't want to buy it i mean i maybe buy 10 to 20 percent of my seeds the rest i try try to get um to get in the region. Yeah.
0: Well, this is important to know now because this is when most of the species here in the temperate area is going to seed. And this is the ideal time to go around and forage and collect. I'm doing that myself. In fact, I was out there yesterday just grabbing stuff that grew around my area. I've been scoping out trees this entire season because we're in a very hot and uh, dry period at the moment for trees that are still thriving despite the drought and the high heat and using those as my indicators of who probably has good genetics, despite where it might be growing. And I've come back now to to collect seeds from those. So knowing what's growing well in your area is a good way to figure out, you know, where you might want to be reproducing the genetics that are succeeding under the conditions that you have.
1: Definitely. And and seeds are uh, are a rare source. And it's going to, I mean, like all the nurseries, um, they they don't sell any seeds because all they they need all the seeds to to raise themselves. Um, also a lot of forest owners they have like long long term contracts with nurseries which are collecting um the seeds there. Um, so yeah, having your your local seed sources is a very very important thing. Yeah.
0: All right, so let's go back to some of the learnings that you've gotten from these systems so far. You were talking about the success of planting from seed, especially for the later succession plants, and putting multiple species in a row and allowing the ecosystem to define what's going to grow best there. What have been some of your other key learnings so far?
1: Another key learning was um, the importance of the herb layer. So in the first system, um, I, I just... Um, I didn't really um include a proper herb layer because I was not able um to collect all the the herb seeds before, and um just buying so many herbs is not not possible. Um, it's just too too expensive to buy organic herbs to put like three herbs every meter. Um, so um for the second season we were able to raise a lot of herbs ourselves and also started to collecting herb seeds and um, we really can see now after four years um, that if you have a well-established herb layer the amount of weeding goes down to yeah, more than half so you can save like 50 to 70 percent of weeding at least really at least if you have a proper established herb layer um, and if you don't have your herb layer established it's yeah, it's it's really really hard um to to weed out um all the grasses um invading invading your tree lines. So yeah, the importance of the herb layer um, got very very obvious for me, and yeah, it's something um which is also not considered at all in in um in normal agroforestry, and. Besides the herb layer, two other very important points um, are um, one is soil preparation. So, we are using this um, tree line preparer from Renostec. It's um, loosening the soil um, to a depth of 45 centimeters, which is enough at our place because we have, we have this compaction layer around mostly always around 20 30 centimeters. Um, and it has a rotary hoe above. And um, so, the soil is also like lifted into the rotary hoe, which works like 13 centimeters deep. Um, And this makes a huge difference because the trees um, are not growing in compacted soil. I mean, a lot of people in agroforestry are still using drills. So they work on compacted fields and they drill holes where they are compacting the sides. And um, yeah, I mean, the tree can grow down then. But that's not a not a proper proper preparation. So and there are not really m- many machines available specialized on preparing um um small stripes for for planting trees. So I think the soil preparation is is very important. Also in terms of weed pressure, etc. It's good to have a clean start, um, and also to have like a yeah a good seed bed. Um, so this is a very important part. And also, oh, Hang on
0: real quick, because I, I, I'm under the impression that Brandenburg is pretty famous for having sandy soils. Mm-hmm. And that makes me think that compaction maybe is not your biggest issue. Is this more important if you have heavy clay soils or yeah, maybe would you have to go deeper if that was the issue?
1: So, um, I mean, we have some loam on our fields. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that we just have pure sand here. And also due to the way agriculture has done here the last century, we have a lot of inner erosion. So inner erosion means that the fine soil particles are washed down in the soil and then are thinned out at a certain depth. Um, so in the upper soil, it's more sandy. And then you have these loam layer where all the loam particles have been washed down by rain and and inner erosion. And um, so it's not that there's no, no loam at all. So you, you have these loam layer um and also the sand here um has the ability um to compact quite a lot so there are different kind of sands. so they're like these round sand particles which are not compacting that much but um the sand particles we are having here they're not round so they have like edges and they also tend to um compact um very heavily um so soil compaction is a really really big topic on on our um, fields here Um. yeah so it's it's definitely not not to be underestimated so i haven't seen a um, agricultural field at our place where we didn't have like a really crucial um soil compaction
0: okay that's good to know Uh, okay so go ahead and continue with the the soil prep this is super interesting
1: yeah, yes. Yeah, soil preparation. So is a, a very, very important part. We also started this year that besides um, so that we added uh, a tank to to spray in um, um, compost organisms and uh, micronutrients um, while um, doing the subsoiling and working with the Rotary Hope. Um, so, yeah, I think this takes a lot of a lot of pressure away. And then um, the first system we started with a bunch of wood chips, and we brought out um, the wood chips mechanically um, with a feed lot wagon. Um, you know, for feeding cows, you can yeah. also put in wood chips in there and just it and puts out the wood chips at the side, Um or with a manure distributor distributor you can also do it, and um, yeah, and the wood chips work really well so even if you have like a super um hot summer with almost no rain in the first year the wood chips if you bring them out in fall um they conserve so much water that you're gonna um, get through your first year but nevertheless it's a big um big input of uh, money and research <laughs> um, so to get away from this um, big input um what i found out to be very important is that you establish your mulch production lines, so the grass, clover, and clover and herb mix one year before you um plant your tree lines. Because then you have a good mulch production from the beginning on. And then you can either just use half of the wood chips because um end of May next year you're gonna have a lot of organic material to swathe to the tree lines. And also we started substituting like half of the wood chips with like shredded straw from our fields. Um, So um, yeah, so how we prepared the last two fields was like this. Um, We had grains growing there and we put a cover crop beneath it with like, um, yeah, clovers, herbs and grasses. And then the grains were harvested beginning of August. And then we had this beautiful green pasture, um, which is very good because then you can also go on there with machinery. And then we're doing the soil preparation also in August, so like in the hot time, because a lot of people they they um, start planting then there in November or December or whenever, and then they drive on the field with big machines and and then they do a lot of um compaction and also if you work with this machine with this tree line preparer we're working with if you start working with it in november you're compacting like on the sides of your tree line and yeah loosening the tree line but then you have a compaction on the left and on the side so it's very important to do the soil preparation when it's dry so when it's still summer so that you can go on the field with with heavy machinery and then if you're early enough if you do it in beginning of August then you can even still have another cut of biomass um, within that year and um, with the straw you're harvesting from the field you can also get like completely independent in terms of biomass and yeah that I think is a really important step and it's yeah it's it's not not really considered by most agroforesters so they people want to have an agroforestry system and they just they always want to have it like immediately in the same year, and um, but what what I'm recommending nowadays is first establish your um your biomass um, lines before and then plant your agroforestry or then um yeah work your stripes into this um, biomass field because then you save a lot of money in in terms of biomass and also you have a green field to work on in winter so because if you have a muddy field yeah you you make a lot of damage even if you're just working with wheelbarrows you can make a lot a lot of damage if you have like an uncovered soil That's Um cool. yeah so i always recommend to to start a year ahead yeah
0: well, wait so this is assuming that you're starting a system onto previous crop land yeah yeah Okay, so if it was already pasture, or let's say it had been left fallow for a handful of years, maybe this wouldn't be as important of a step?
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Okay, got it. That makes a lot of sense. Because I'm thinking right here, because I'm looking at a pasture right behind me that has been left fallow for quite a while. It's wild, it's got a lot of, let's say, bushes, a lot of wild blackberry, some pasture, but not that much. A lot of artemisia out in the fields. And would you consider that maybe a, a decent enough start that you could put in
1: your tree lines
0: and use what's already there as your biomass?
1: Um, depends a little bit on the on the growth you, you have there. Um, I mean, I think it's always good to have as much um, biomass as possible. So I cannot really evaluate your, your pasture right now. So, But maybe it would make sense to add some other species there to have, have more biomass production. Um yeah, so it also depends a little bit on on your climate. So I have a dry we have a dry climate here, like a very dry climate. So what I found out here, um, to keep the mulch stripe next to the tree limes, to to keep it constant, I need like three meters of mulch production on um yeah, to have eno- enough mulch production. I think yeah. on on better, better sites where you have more growth, um, two meters can be enough. And also depends on the row distance you have. So if you have a wider row distance, and you know you have like four or five meters of marsh production, maybe even a less productive um, pasture um, can be sufficient. Yeah, that would be. That's really good to think.
0: keep in mind. So this funny thing about me here is that in where we're at in Catalonia, in the the central mountains, in between the Pyrenees and the coast, the previous average was somewhere around seven hundred and fifty millimeters a year. Which sounds like basically double yours, but the difference is that we have so much more sunlight and so much more heat. So the evaporative coefficient there actually makes it so that we, I think, enter into longer drought periods than you guys do, where it's more overcast, it's cloudier and such. So I would probably do the same thing, right? even though I have more rainfall, leaving those larger alleys in between for biomass production and, you know, just realizing that planting that densely is going to cause some competition for water resources and the fact that all of my soil is sand, basically just decomposed granite, you know, that's kind of the way that I'm thinking about it and maybe could serve as a reference for someone else who has higher rainfall but needs to consider the evaporative potential potential of the climate that they're in as well. So it could actually balance out and make for similar situations that you're in. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's see. Are there any other main learnings that you wanna cover before we we go into some deeper specifics?
1: No, I think this were the the most, um, most important. So maybe something to add. I mean, we also started a, a tree nursery at our farm um, and there we put our trees in so-called root pouchers or um, air pots. I mean, yeah, everyone can Google it. So these are like two um, two potting systems where the roots are not um, running and running in circles, and where they also don't have to be cut because they're um, the, um, at the edges. There's a semi-permeable um, membrane, and so the roots are just stop growing at the side of the pot and get more dense inside and so you have an undisturbed um, root system which is very dense and we plant those trees which we produce there we plant them one year after grafting so we usually graft them in spring and plant them out in fall and the difference of those trees um, compared to usual trees you get from a nursery is, is also huge. Um so if for some reason you don't have the possibility to work by seed I would really recommend people to produce the tr- the trees themselves or to check for a nursery um which takes more care of the root system of the trees but there are almost no nurseries nowadays doing that. Yeah.
0: One of the reasons why I'm planning on being a nursery that does that in my area. Uh, This is something that I've explored before in previous episodes, and like you said, there's a real need for this quality of tree production in nurseries, and partly because I need to supply myself, and I've struggled to find sources like this where I am, and also realizing the need as more and more people plant in this way. I think it's going to be an important thing to invest in where I'm at. I'm curious, too, about some of the species that you mentioned putting into your system, specifically the Robinia pseudoacacia, as we call acacias here, although they are not acacias, um, where in English is more common to refer to them as black locusts and also walnuts. These have very specific management requirements. The black locust is known for suckering. And invading out under the sides and in your pasture and starting to throw up a whole bunch of little what they call hijitos or those you know, small trees, especially when you prune them. I'm curious as how you manage that and then for walnuts, having the allelopathic the qualities of killing many other species around them how you've managed that one let's take them one at a time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with the Robinia, I mean, of, of course it's a question I'm, I'm asked a lot Um so. Those mother trees, those early successional mother trees like the robinia, um, we with those mother trees we we just start the apical pruning um, when the tree has um, reached the end height, where we then am um, gonna constantly prune it to, um, and this end height I'm focusing on in my system is like seven meters. So till it till it has reached seven meters, the Robinia um, can grow more or less undisturbed. The only thing I'm I'm doing is taking off some lower branches, which are growing into my fruit cultures, because in syntropic agriculture, you always keep, keep the layers well separated. So the, the branches of the mother trees should not grow into the crown of the fruit production trees below. Um, so the robinia can grow quite undisturbed until um, it reaches the seven meters. And when those mother trees reach those seven meters, they should be pollarded from the beginning on every year so that they always have like um, small wounds. Um, this was also how it has been done in ancient times. And this is also why these polar trees um, can get like really old. Um, even it's like prolonging the um, the life period of a tree if you if you do it the right way, um, and when these robinia um, reach the seven meters, um, the fruit um, fruit production um, species below will like com- completely close already. So under the robinia, and for example in my case, I will have the sea bark corn. And and all these late succession species, they will like form a complete dense hedge below the robinia, um, and um, in the full shade, the robinia will not um, not make any any branches, or it will also not um, make any root suckers in the in the full shade. So if you have like a, an apple tree or something below or a plum, and which is like completely closing, the robinia will not. Tr- not be able to bring um, up anything within the shade Um, and that's also the case for all the other um um, early successionary trees like poplar which are also making root suckers and then in this area in between the lines the six and a half meters or whatever distance you have um yeah the grass grass and clover is like um cut four times a year um yeah so i don't see any um possibility of the Robinia invading there I mean we also have like forest land with Robinia close to our agricultural fields and we also don't have the problem of the Robinia invading into into this agricultural fields so within the tree line um yeah the 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 suckers are um yeah are prevented by shade and in between the tree lines it's just a regular um cutting and cutting and mowing and that's also, and the thing with the succession, um, the sea buckhorn, for example, as well, we're going to take it out after 15, maximum 20 years, but then it's not going to be able to come back because then the plums and apples are going to close and it's just not going to grow, grow in shade. Yeah, Yeah,
0: that makes sense. You're creating the conditions for it not to be a problem, whereas it could otherwise invade if there were not these other conditions and species to take the place of what they would otherwise thrive under.
1: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that's also the thing um, with the Rubinia. I mean, it's just invasive in very degraded ecosystems. Yeah. Rubinia is not not invading a beech oak forest or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And that's the general thing with those invasive species that they usually just thrive on very um, disturbed areas. And it's also very interesting with the herbs, as I mentioned, for example, on our tree lines, in the first year, everything is like full with uh, the cornflower. This is blue flower, you maybe know. And that's like in all our agricultural fields, we have it every year. But in our tree lines, it's just in the first year. In the second year, you don't have any cornflower anymore and you have other herbs coming up. So you see that if you let the succession going, it's not going to be the same herb or same Tree for like for always. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: that makes sense. Okay, so what about the challenges of the walnut and the allelopathic, basically root exudates that it puts out, which kind of create the conditions for no competition from other plants, which yeah. is kind of its defense mechanism.
1: So um, the walnut, um, as far as I see it, is a is an emergent tree. So it's in the in the highest layer. Um, so in my walnut system, I planted. I put a, put walnuts in every six line, because the walnut line will not will not produce a lot of biomass on the long term. And if I would put walnuts every line, I would not have sufficient biomass um, production in my in my system on the long term. Um, and with the allo allopathetic um, effects of walnut, I think that it's quite quite overestimated because if you just Look in literature. How many species there are which are, do not have these allelopathetic, um, um, yeah, reactions with walnut. There are still quite a lot. For example, all the um, monocotyledons, so all the grains, they don't have these allelopathetic effects with the walnut. So all the grasses don't have problems with walnuts at all. And also, like the and for some species, there's still um, no research being done. Um, but for most of the species, but for example, peach works really well with walnut. Um, also, the American hazel um, works very well um, with walnut. I haven't seen studies about the European hazel, but I'm guessing it will also not have big problems. Um, and yeah, there. A lot of species which do not have any problems with walnuts and yeah i think it's on us to to find out more about it mm, yeah but um, yeah i've seen in my region i know a hedge where also seabar corn grows with um, walnut and hazel and it's it's still looking very good so i think we should try to focus more on to find out which species do not have problems with walnuts Um. yeah because they're they're quite a lot
0: Sure. Yeah, here the mulberries are the ones that we often pair.
1: Also, silverberry goes very well with it. Yeah. Oh,
0: nice. That's something I'll keep in mind. Okay, so that's the the questions I had off the top of my head for the specific species. Would you make any recommendations on how to? Because you know we were talking about earlier about the necessity of understanding the qualities, the behaviors of the plants that you're pairing with one another in order to make a design that fits within your personal objectives with creating a planting like this, where would you recommend that someone get started in their research if they don't have the background in forestry or plant identification that you have?
1: Um, I would start my research on the observation of the environment, actually. Mm. Um. Because, yeah, you just, you can, for example, here, you can look in the um, um, rejuvenations with Robinia pseudoacacia. And what you're gonna see is that there are a lot of trees coming up below the robinia, and um, so my rec- and also there's not that much research being done also in forestry of which trees work well well with each other, and then it's always just two species together, and it's mainly a light competition thing. But light is something we can manage in centropic agriculture. Um, so yeah, I would really recommend to start observation in nature and then also to use such a high diversity that if one or two species fall out, you don't have a problem. Yeah, that, that would makes a recommendation.
0: Sense. Yeah. Um man, look, I'm so interested in seeing how these systems continue to advance and your learnings and your observations as this happens. Obviously, it's a long-term investment. But I also hope that other people will take on the challenge of trying this out in their own microclimates, in their own biomes, because there is adaptation and learning to be had anywhere. I'm definitely going to be trying some of these in the coming years. Maybe I'll reach out to you again to see if I can get some advice on adapting this to my area as well. Look, Renque, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you finally. And I really hope we can stay in touch, maybe do a follow up in a couple of years as we gather more learnings and observations from all of these
1: with
0: pleasure thanks again to renke i'll include his contact in the show notes for this episode for any of you who are interested in reaching out to him directly now before we wrap this up just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources design and coaching services in-person courses and interactive community that are available through regenerative skills the discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, You can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. (laughs) you <laughs>